Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Friday, December 29th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topsher with today's headlines. The House GOP suggests Biden may have obstructed justice in its impeachment inquiry. North Korea's Kim vows to bolster the nation's war readiness. The U.S. releases its last package of authorized aid for Ukraine. Oil prices stabilize as Red Sea transport disruptions ease. Western powers express concern over Iran's uranium enrichment. Nikki Haley faces backlash following controversial comments on the U.S. Civil War. Poland's culture minister liquidates all public media. General Motors sues San Francisco for $121 million in back taxes. Toxic smog blankets South Asian cities. And the inventor of the Glock firearms dies at 94. The House GOP probes the White House over Hunter Biden's subpoena defiance. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, Politico, CBS, Fox News, and Axios. Republicans in the U.S. House who are currently conducting an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden are seeking to determine if the president colluded with his son, Hunter Biden, when the younger Biden defied a congressional subpoena earlier this month. Oversight Committee Chair James Comer, Republican of Kentucky, and Judiciary Committee Chair Jim Jordan, Republican of Ohio, sent a letter to the White House Wednesday, explaining that comments made by the president about his son's actions have led them to suspect a conspiracy to obstruct a proceeding of Congress took place. On December 13th, Hunter refused an Oversight Committee request for a closed-door meeting, instead appearing outside the Capitol to repeat his wish to answer questions publicly. On the same day, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre told reporters the president was familiar with the remarks that Hunter would make outside of the Capitol. Comer and Jordan have requested the White House to produce all documents related to Hunter's deposition by January 10th. Three House committees are currently investigating whether there are sufficient grounds to impeach the president, an inquiry the House voted to formalize earlier this month. To date, the impeachment inquiry has not unearthed any evidence linking Biden to an impeachable offense. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We also have some narrative spins on this political story. Let's start with the Republican narrative from Daily Caller. If there wasn't a conspiracy, the White House should have no problem turning over the requested communications. The House can't take the president at his word, considering how much his story has changed concerning his interactions with Hunter's business associates. Another aspect of the impeachment inquiry. MSNBC brings us a Democratic narrative. The Republicans' embarrassing impeachment inquiry is stooping to absurd depths in its months-long search for anything it can hang on Joe Biden. Except this time, the alleged crime has been manufactured because there couldn't have been a conspiracy when everyone knew Hunter was going to defy the subpoena and instead offer to testify publicly. And from time to time, we have nerd narratives from the Metaculous Prediction community. This time, they say there's a 25% chance that the U.S. House will impeach President Biden. Now, Melissa, from time to time, we have a old story pops up on our uh, call sheet here of stories we're supposed to read for the podcast. Very rarely, but I must say that we both thought perhaps this was uh, one of those old stories that bubbled up again. Turns out it's not. (laughs) 
No, it's just moving forward uh, one slow page at a time. That's mm -hmm. when it's only robots roaming the earth. It'll be a mere blip in the the robot history book of, of right humanity. next week. Yeah, next week. <laughs> Next up, North Korea's Kim wants his military to accelerate war preparations. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, DW, Al Jazeera Express, Yonhap News Agency, and France 24. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has called on the country's ruling party to step up war readiness, including the nuclear program, to counter what he described as U.S.-led confrontational moves, state media said on Thursday. In a speech at a key political meeting of his ruling Workers' Party, Kim urged to further accelerate the war preparations in the country's defense industry, nuclear weapons, and civil defense sectors. North Korea's supreme leader also referred to future relations with South Korea, the Korean Central News Agency reported, without giving further details. The military situation on the Korean peninsula reached an extreme level following unprecedented U.S.-led confrontational actions against the North, Kim claimed. He also added that Pyongyang would deepen strategic relations with anti-imperialist independent nations. Kim's comments come as South Korean Defense Minister Shin Wok-sik reportedly said on Tuesday that the South Korean military should brutally bury them at sea should the North launch what he called another provocative action. Shin Won-sik was inspecting a new warship as South Korea seeks to renew its aging fleet. Meanwhile, South Korea's National Intelligence Service claimed on Thursday that Pyongyang is likely to launch military provocations or a cyber attack ahead of South Korea's parliamentary elections in April and the U.S. presidential election in November. Last week, Kim reportedly vowed that Pyongyang would not hesitate to use nuclear weapons in the event of a nuclear provocation. The U.S. and South Korea recently held the second meeting of their Nuclear Consultative Group, to explore nuclear deterrence options against Pyongyang, warning that any nuclear attack on either country would end Kim's regime. This year, Pyongyang launched a reconnaissance satellite and tested its most advanced intercontinental ballistic missile. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. And we'll start this round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative from Newsweek. Kim's announcement to accelerate North Korea's war readiness, including its nuclear program, in addition to the North's recent string of missile tests in violation of UN resolutions, underscores the need for deepened U.S.-Japan-South Korean military cooperation. Pyongyang's constant saber-rattling not only jeopardizes South Korea's national security, but also directly threatens the U.S. through its recent tests of intercontinental ballistic missiles capable of reaching U.S. soil. The U.S. will continue to increase pressure on the Kim regime and is keeping all military options, including nuclear, open to defend its allies. Press TV brings us the establishment critical narrative. It's not North Korea that poses a threat to regional peace and stability, but the USA and its vassals, above all South Korea. To maintain its hegemonic claims, Washington is risking a nuclear war through its increasing provocations and most recently by sending a nuclear-capable bomber to the region. Pyongyang has every right to counter these provocations by expanding its own defensive military capabilities and further developing its nuclear deterrent potential. The North will not be intimidated and will protect its sovereignty and territorial integrity by all means. We have a narrative C on this story from the South China Morning Post. 
While Kim wishes to deepen cooperation with Russia and China, Beijing is reluctant to expand bilateral military cooperation. Pyongyang is indeed expanding its military ties with Moscow, but China is seeking to establish itself as a regional stabilizing factor, as illustrated by the recent meeting between China, Japan, and South Korea, as well as, well as the recent rapprochement between China and the U.S. Also, for economic reasons, Beijing is keen not to appear as a promoter of a trilateral axis with Russia and North Korea to avoid a new Cold War from which the U.S. might ultimately benefit. And another nerd narrative from Metaculus, they predict a 15% chance of a full-scale war between North and South Korea by the year 2050. Who doesn't love a good cold war, right? It's like yeah. a, cold, a cold plunge for, for Global warming, cold war. That's the yeah. way it goes. <laughs> yeah. What's your take on cold plunges? I'm, I'm in. Uh, I've been doing them, and I need to... Um, I've decided I need to home in on uh, the timing of it because I think I'm going in too long. Okay, go on. Yeah, you know, these are in winter months, so November and December. It's taken me um, probably an hour or two and in full cozy gear inside of a sleeping bag to recover my body temperature. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. So I think it's a little bit too long. The U.S. releases its last authorized weapons package for Ukraine. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, the U.S. Department of Defense, the Associated Press, and Politico. In what could be the last U.S. military aid package headed to Ukraine, unless Congress approves further spending, the White House released a weapons package worth $250 million on Wednesday. The package, America's 54th to Ukraine since August 2021, includes munitions for air defense systems as well as for a range of weapons, including artillery and rocket systems, the U.S. Department of Defense said in a statement. The weapons will go to Ukraine from existing Pentagon stockpiles under what's known as the Presidential Drawdown Authority, an allocation that's now been exhausted, according to officials. The Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, another means of furnishing the country's war effort, has also reportedly run out of funds. For weeks, the White House and defense officials have urged Congress to approve President Joe Biden's national security package that will allocate an additional $61.4 billion for Ukraine, as well as spending on Israel and other countries. They argued that failure to do so would severely hamper Ukraine's ability to defend itself as the war approaches its two-year mark. Reports prior to Wednesday's announcement revealed that Ukraine had already been forced to downsize the scope of some military operations amid drop-offs in foreign aid. Ukrainian General Alexander Tarnavsky said there were ammunition shortages along the entire front line, creating a big problem for Kyiv. Meanwhile, according to a report in Politico citing a Biden administration official and a European diplomat based in Washington, the U.S. and European allies were quietly shifting their strategy in Ukraine, moving away from seeking total victory over Russia to a defensive posture aimed at improving Ukraine's hand in possible negotiations. Such a negotiation would likely mean giving up parts of Ukraine to Russia, the report said. Thanks, Melissa, for that update on this ongoing situation. We have a pro-establishment narrative from The Guardian. While Western countries have pledged to support Ukraine for as long as it takes, they have largely fallen short of providing Ukraine with the amounts 
and types of weapons needed to inflict defeat on Russia. That fate of beating the Kremlin is still very much possible, but these countries need to rapidly ramp up their delivery of weaponry. The American conservative brings us an establishment critical narrative. The West's collective failure in seeking to expand NATO eastward to Russia's borders started this war, which has resulted in Ukraine losing vast swaths of territory, as well as untold numbers of men and women. Rather than continue prolonging this devastation, Ukraine needs to push for peace. We have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 0.1% chance that Ukraine will have de facto control of at least 90% of the Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts by January 1st, 2024. Oil prices drop as shipping disruptions ease in the Red Sea. Here are the facts as agreed upon by MSN, Business Insider, and Economy Middle East. As worries about shipping delays along the Red Sea route subsided on Thursday, oil prices dropped by nearly 1% despite the ongoing hostilities in the Middle East. U.S. WTI, West Texas Intermediate Oil Futures, were trading $0.05 lower at $74.06 a barrel, while Brent crude futures increased $0.10, or 0.1%, to $79.75 a barrel on Thursday. As anxieties about shipping in the Red Sea have subsided, Hiroyuki Kikukawa, president of NS Trading, stated that ongoing concerns about Middle East tensions, especially on Iran's involvement in the region, make it difficult to sell further. Expectations of a resurgence in fuel demand due to monetary easing in the U.S. and increased kerosene demand during the Northern Hemisphere's winter, are anticipated to cause the market to expand in the early part of the new year. Major shipping firms ceased using the Suez Canal and the Red Sea earlier this month due to the disruption of global trade caused by the Iran-backed Houthis in Yemen targeting boats passing through. Concerted action by a U.S.-led coalition has, however, not materialized as of yet. Nevertheless, the likelihood of an extended Israeli military campaign in Gaza and the possibility of the conflict expanding, including increased attacks on ships in the Red Sea, continue to be significant factors influencing market sentiment. Thank you, Scott. Here's a pro-establishment narrative from London Southeast. President Biden had vowed to keep oil prices down. The administration is prepared to go to whatever lengths necessary to preserve market stability and low oil prices. Washington is dedicated to stabilizing freight transit in the Red Sea Corridor as evidenced by the formation of a task force last week to protect trade in the region. The Red Sea and the Suez Canal handle about 12% of all marine traffic worldwide. Oil tankers were temporarily diverted, but the main shipping lines are again returning to the Red Sea route, which is encouraging news for the market. And the establishment critical narrative comes from Egypt Oil and Gas. The Israel-Palestinian conflict could have far-reaching economic consequences. The protracted conflict between the two sides not only has a substantial humanitarian toll, but also threatens to bring about a new global economic shock. Important energy infrastructure, pipelines, refineries, and export terminals could be destroyed in the event of a full-scale conflict in the Middle East. This would send prices worldwide through the roof, which would only exasperate already existing issues with inflation. The world needs an immediate, lasting solution in Gaza to ensure maritime and energy security in the Red Sea and beyond. And there's another nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 50% chance that peak oil production will be reached worldwide by December 2025. 
Western powers are concerned about Iran's uranium production. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Barron's, Voice of America, Times of Israel, Al Jazeera, and Fox News. In a joint statement released on Thursday, the U.S., U.K., Germany, and France voiced concerns over Iran's production of weapons-grade uranium after the United Nations Atomic Watchdog reported Tuesday that Tehran has accelerated its uranium processing. According to the IAEA, Iran has reversed its previous output reduction from mid-2023, increasing its production of 60% enriched uranium to a rate of roughly 9 kilograms, 20 pounds, per month since the end of November. IAEA chief Rafael Grossi says that Iran has scaled back its production of highly enriched uranium in June, down to around 3 kilograms per month. Nuclear weapons need enrichment levels of 90%, and the IAEA claimed in January that Tehran already had sufficient nuclear material to produce several weapons. In response to the report, the four Western nations warned of significant proliferation risks, adding that it constitutes irresponsible behavior in the context of regional tensions. However, Iran's atomic energy chief Mohammad Eslami dismissed the IAEA's report insisting that there was nothing new and that the nation's activity is according to the regulations. Iran had agreed to limit its stockpile of enriched uranium as part of its 2015 deal with world powers, which set a limit of 202.8 kilograms or 447 pounds. However, Tehran has 22 times that limit, with a stockpile of 4,487 kilograms. The U.S. withdrew from the deal under former President Donald Trump in 2018, with efforts to restart an agreement having stalled. Uranium enrichment involves increasing the percentage of uranium-235, the isotope of uranium that can be used in nuclear fission. According to the IAEA, Iran could make three nuclear bombs if it continues to further enrich its uranium. Thanks for that update, Melissa. The anti-Iran narrative comes from Newsweek. Iran has completely disregarded its agreements and is speeding ahead in its nuclear enrichment program. A troubling development in and of itself, but even more so amid Iran-backed proxies' attacks on U.S. military bases and threats toward Israel. Iran is behind much of the destabilization occurring in the Middle East and is doing all it can to increase tensions with the U.S. Here's a pro-Iran narrative from Mare News Agency. Anti-Iran sentiment and propaganda are in full force as the West, which is the true destabilizer in the Middle East, tries to start a conflict with Tehran. It's clear that the IAEA is trying to cause a media frenzy to portray Iran as a nuclear threat as the U.S. seeks to distract from Israel's atrocities in Gaza. Iran has no plans of making nuclear weapons. It's merely conducting routine activity within the IAEA's regulations. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that Iran will possess a nuclear weapon before 2030. Nikki Haley expands her Civil War comments amid backlash. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Hill, Daily Caller, BBC News, The Associated Press, Fox News, and NBC News. Republican presidential hopeful Nikki Haley is under fire from both sides of the political aisle after she failed to mention slavery when asked about the cause of the U.S. Civil War. At a New Hampshire town hall on Wednesday, a voter asked the former U.N. ambassador what was the cause of the Civil War. Haley gave a long answer, saying the war, quote, was basically how government was going to run, 
the freedoms and what people could and couldn't do, end quote. However, she didn't mention slavery in her response. After Haley's response, the questioner scolded the former South Carolina governor for not mentioning slavery. Haley hit back asking, what do you want me to say about slavery? Before moving on to the next question. However, she backpedaled her statement the next morning in a radio interview. Haley told CNN on Thursday, of course the Civil War was about slavery, adding, we know that. She said her answer addressed what the Civil War means today about freedom. In an interview on the Pulse of New Hampshire, she accused the voter who asked the question of being a Democrat plant. Republican primary opponent and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis called Haley's answer about the Civil War an incomprehensible word salad, while saying that she is not a candidate that's ready for prime time. Meanwhile, President Joe Biden, the likely Democratic nominee, called out Haley's comments on X, writing, it was about slavery. Republican voters in New Hampshire will head to the polls in just a few weeks to officially kick off the primary season. While former President Donald Trump is the clear frontrunner to win the Republican nomination, Haley has vaulted to second place in various polls and is performing well in the Granite State. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. And of course, we have some political narratives on this. We'll start with the Democratic narrative from the Rolling Stone. Nikki Haley showed her true colors on Wednesday with her failure to even mention slavery when addressing the cause of the Civil War. The Republican politician is trying to play all sides as she tries to cement herself as the Trump alternative while trying not to alienate the far-right MAGA base. Her failed response not only shows that she isn't a skilled politician, but also how the modern GOP clings to relics of the past. And the Republican narrative from the Wall Street Journal. Nikki Haley has brought into question her qualification for president as she cannot even handle the simplest off-script questions from voters. Not only did Haley fail to properly address the voters' question about the Civil War, but she also went on to accuse the questioner of being a Democrat plant. If she can't even handle basic questions at a town hall, how can she deal with the pressure of being president? The National Review brings us a cynical narrative. While there's no doubt that Haley committed an embarrassing faux pas, it doesn't merit the hysteric response that it has received. The media, looking to incite excitement in a stagnant primary race, has fueled a feeding frenzy, with Haley as the main course. Meanwhile, both sides of the political aisle have seized upon this to bolster their own bases. It's time to move on. How many Weight Watcher points is an incomprehensible word salad? <laughs> I, I think it's like one or two. You know, the, oh, that's more, good. the more incomprehensible it is, the less points. Yeah, but then I want to put some of that like avocado ranch on top. That'll That's what gets you. It's not yeah, the word salad, it's you. the dressing. Just stick to yeah. the basics. Yeah. The Polish culture minister will liquidate state media outlets. Here are the facts as agreed upon by DW, BBC News, and The Telegraph. Polish culture minister Bartłomiej Sienkiewicz announced Wednesday that he will liquidate all public media, which consists of Telewizja Polska S.A., Polski Radio S.A., and Polska Agencja Prasowa S.A. He said his decision would carry out the necessary restructuring and prevent layoffs of employees. This follows the culture minister's decision last week to take the 24-hour public news station, TVP Info, off the air and fire the boards of all public media. In response, the Law and Justice, the Law and Justice Party called the move illegal and held sit-in protests. 
On Wednesday, President Andrzej Duda, a member of PIS, then vetoed a $3 billion zloty, roughly $766 million, public media funding bill. Liquidation doesn't mean public broadcasters will be dissolved with Sinkiewicz stating that his policy will ensure the continued operation of these companies. He also said the liquidation process can be revoked at any time. The pro-EU government under newly elected Prime Minister Donald Tusk said his media overhaul seeks to restore unbiased public media after eight years of conservative control. However, members of PIS, like parliamentarian Joanna Lihoska, say Tusk is destroying the Polish media and silencing conservative voices. President Duda agrees the government's media policies also violate the Constitution. On the other side, critics of PIS, like the Helsinki Foundation for Human Rights, claim public media needed to be reformed after eight years of being a propaganda mouthpiece of the former PIS government. The right groups, however, also acknowledged that the way such reform has been conducted under Tusk raises serious doubts. Melissa, we have right and left narrative spins on this story. Let's start on the left from PBS NewsHour. Though Donald Tusk won the hearts of Poland's majority through his message of unity and reinstating democratic norms, the PIS is still trying to dismantle his agenda through biased conservative news coverage. The PIS has long used public media to propagate xenophobic, and homophobic disinformation, and they're hoping to continue to leverage their media control ahead of next year's local and European parliament elections. The right narrative comes from European conservative. While the European establishment claims Poland was under a corrupt conservative media regime, the truth is that TVP was the last place Polish citizens could find any conservative commentary. As soon as he entered office, Tusk began firing virtually every right-leaning pundit in the name of restoring democracy. Tusk, at the behest of his European Parliament masters, also began reshaping the judiciary to push the establishment's agenda. The previous TVP was fighting for free speech and democracy. Tusk is destroying it. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 24% chance that Poland will legalize gay marriage by 2030. The public radio station near where I live, WHYY, the Philadelphia NPR station, they actually invented fresh air. That's where Terry Gross actually is. Oh. Um, so that's like a feather in their cap. They, that's like their their baby. You know, Terry Gross is in the house at WHYY, which is. Oh, nice. And they have no, they're not afraid to tell you. Believe me. <laughs> they're very proud of her accomplishments. They are. And they should be, because I would say that's the signature show of all NPR, right? Like every. NPR station, I would say, at this point, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a big one. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Way to go. So, yeah, good for that. And then, you know, when the pledge drives come up, they know our show, Fresh Air. But they, from my short time in public radio, they sent, they probably make a bunch of money from the other, you know, if you have the show, the other NPR stations buy that show from you. Mm. Um, so they probably make quite a bit from that in the first oh, place interesting. from the other stations. Yeah. So that so different um, NPRs can be doing uh, better than others. I would say so. Yeah, yeah. A- and you know, if you're an NPR station, you don't have fresh air. You got a problem. So I would say that's yeah. that's on every NPR. So yeah, you get probably, a one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. General Motors sues the city of San Francisco for 121 million dollars in back taxes. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC Bay Area, The Hill, and the San Francisco Standard. General Motors, the parent company of the self-driving car company Cruise, is suing the city of San Francisco, California for $108 million in back taxes for the past seven years, plus $8 million in interest and penalties. While the city taxed them because Cruise is based in San Francisco, GM claims the subsidiary is separate from the GM Corporation, which is based in Detroit. In the lawsuit filed in the California Superior Court and the County of San Francisco, GM argued that despite having made only $677,000 in retail sales in 2022, as well as having no employees, manufacturing plants, or dealerships in the city, San Francisco taxed Cruise's $3 billion in global revenue. While GM acknowledged that Cruise made an annual average of $148 billion in gross revenue between 2016 and 2022, it believes it shouldn't be taxed as heavily because of its limited presence in the city. The corporation stated in the suit that Cruise's driverless delivery business is fundamentally different from GM's business of making and selling cars. The Detroit car manufacturer further stated that by using Cruise's payroll to calculate GM's liabilities, San Francisco issued the company a tax bill tens of thousands of times greater than if Cruise's payroll were not included in GM's payroll factor. This follows the resignation of Cruise's former chief executive officer in November after all of its cars were pulled from the streets to update its software due to safety concerns. On October 2nd, an autonomous cruise vehicle dragged a person along the road after the person was hit by another car and pushed in front of the cruise vehicle. Thank you, Scott. Here are the spins, starting with Narrative A from Bloomberg. San Francisco taxed GM's more than $3 billion in global revenue, even though the corporation has no dealerships or factories, and made less than a million dollars in San Francisco retail sales in 2022. Furthermore, Cruise has taken all of its cars off the road, which shows that even its San Francisco-based subsidiary has not been a moneymaker for the corporation. It makes no sense for a Detroit-based company with little presence in California to make up 2% of a California city's yearly tax revenue. This was a bad-faith assessment by the city. And the Detroit Free Press brings us Narrative B. Car manufacturers do a lot of good for the country and have received much-deserved praise for their innovation and job creation. However, companies like GM and Ford have, over the last 20 or so years, benefited from bailouts when business is bad and tax loopholes when profits are booming. Whether it be at the local, state, or federal level, it's time to question this newfound greed and public-private corruption within America's historically beloved auto industry. It's fair and reasonable to expect proportional taxation. Immetaculous gives us another nerd narrative saying there's a 63% chance that a legacy automaker will go bankrupt before 2030. Toxic smog engulfs cities in Bangladesh and Southeast Asia. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, World Resources Institute, and CNN. On Wednesday, IQ Air, a Swiss organization monitoring climate issues, announced that Dhaka, Bangladesh, has become the world's most polluted city, reaching 325 on its index, a threshold categorized as hazardous. Large fossil fuel burning projects that began in the spring have led to deteriorating air quality conditions. Rafik Mundal, a Dhaka rickshaw operator, said, We often suffer from asthma, fever, and allergies while operating. It is often very painful. 
Locations across Indonesia, Singapore, Thailand, and Malaysia have also seen a deterioration in air quality. Typically, the conditions that produce toxic air occur during the winter when the air is dry and combines with fossil fuel pollutants in the region. The El Nino weather pattern has reportedly exacerbated the unhealthy conditions this year. In response to the rise in toxic air, DACA officials are spraying city streets with water to dampen particles to aid in settling the dust on the surface. With several South Asian cities experiencing the same conditions for the same reasons, the World Bank has encouraged Bangladesh to work with its regional neighbors to reach a solution. In November, India and Pakistan also experienced a spike in smog blanketing major urban areas. The hazardous conditions were caused by agricultural fields and crop burning, combined with vehicle pollution during those incidents. Thanks, Melissa, for that interesting story. The Deccan Herald brings us Narrative A. Countries across the region are paralyzed by the deteriorating toxic and unhealthy air quality. There's a solution, but to solve this crisis, the nations must work together to understand the causes, develop regional policy, and develop innovative solutions. State-sanctioned responses and major regional collaboration will have to precariously balance the creation of healthy air for residents, meeting the needs of the economy. Narrative B is from World Bank. While the World Bank and other bodies stress robust regional actions to address the smog issue in South and Southeast Asia, some targeted cost-effective programming can go a long way. For example, the development of India's National Clean Air Program increased air quality standards, reduced vehicle and industrial pollution, and explored alternative energy investments while also preserving economic development. Tackling smog doesn't have to be daunting or economically stifling for the nations affected. And a nerd narrative from Attaculus. There's a 50% chance that India becomes a World Bank high-income country by November 2049. Our final story, the inventor of Glock firearms dies at 94 years old. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, The New York Times, NBC, CNN, and The Business Standard. Austrian billionaire Gaston Glock, inventor of the eponymous handgun, died on Wednesday, age 94. Since the invention of the handgun in the 1980s, Glock has turned into a branding staple for small arms among both civilians and security forces across the world. After serving as a conscript in Adolf Hitler's Wehrmacht as a teenager during the end of World War II, Glock ran a small business in Vienna selling curtain rods and knives out of his garage. In the 1980s, Glock entered the arms innovation sector. He developed a polymer-structured semi-automatic pistol that was deemed lightweight, reliable, and easy to use, going on to revolutionize the world's small arms trade, according to his website. The size of the Glock handgun allowed increased popularity given its ease of concealment. Its unique safe action feature enabled quick use, allegedly leading to a spate of accidental and spontaneous shootings, according to gun safety advocates. Glock notably refused to sign a voluntary gun control deal with the U.S. government alongside other firearm manufacturers in 2000. He also refrained from public discussion in the gun control debate. U.S. pop culture frequently referenced the handgun, which had been originally developed for the Austrian military. At the time of Glock's death, he was estimated to be worth $1.1 billion. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. We'll start with a left narrative from The Guardian. It's not difficult to see how making deadly weapons easier to use and more readily available to the general public could have catastrophic consequences. 
Gaston Glock's company has rightly been referred to as Merchants of Death. What makes this name all the more fitting is the nonchalant confession by Glock's former lawyer that mass shootings were a sensational marketing tool. Glock's quiet lifestyle cannot deny the horrific impacts on societies that his company and products had. An eagle gun range brings us the right narrative. Glock handguns should not be scapegoated. In fact, they come with a host of important safety features. These advances have helped to reduce accidental discharges. In fact, negligence, insufficient training, and most importantly, unsafe persons are responsible for gun deaths. Gaston Glock deserves to be given due respect and justly recognized for his role in advancing the development of small arms in a responsible way. And we'll end with a nerd narrative from Metaculus that says there's a 50% chance that there will be at least 1.40 small firearms per capita in the USA by 2029. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Friday, December 29th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. To learn more about Verity, you can visit our website, verity.news, or download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire. Happy New Year, and see you next time on Verity. 